You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of Volume 2 of Transforming the Soul, a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner, translated by Charles Davy and Christian von Arnhem, and revised for this edition by Pauline Verla. Lecture 1 is entitled Spiritual Science and Language, given on the 20th of January, 1910. It is fascinating to look at the various expressions of man's being from the point of view of the kind of spiritual science we represent here. For as we, so to speak, work our way around human life, as we have done in these lectures, and look at it from its different sides, we can get an impression of human life as a whole. Today we shall speak about that universal expression of the human spirit, which is manifest in language, and next time our title will be Laughing and Weeping, when we shall look at a kind of related means of expression, which, although it is connected with language, is entirely different. Whenever we discuss language, we never fail to feel that the whole subject of language touches on the essence of man's being, his very dignity and significance. The innermost part of our being, all our thoughts, feelings, and impulses of will, find their way to our fellow human beings and unite us with them by means of language. It is language that gives us the feeling of being able to extend our being infinitely, of having the ability to ray out into the environment. Yet, on the other hand, anyone who can enter into the inner life of a significant personality will be able to feel how language can also become a tyrant, a force that can exert power over our inner life. We ourselves can notice, if we care to, how inadequately and weakly we are able to express our own understanding of the special and tender feelings and thoughts we cherish within our souls. And we feel, too, how even the language we have grown up with forces us into specific modes of thought. Everyone must be aware how dependent we are on language where our thinking is concerned. Our concepts frequently cling to words. And when, not yet fully mature, a person will easily confuse a word or what the word has instilled into him with the concept. Hence, the inability of some people to construct for themselves a conceptual framework that reaches beyond what is contained in the words commonly used in their environment. And we know, too, that the character of a whole people who speak a common language is in a certain way dependent on this language. At least the person who observes national character and the character of languages in their context must realize that the way in which individuals are able to express through sounds what is in their souls, works back in its turn on the strength and weakness of their character, on the way their temperament expresses itself 
even on their whole attitude to life. The configuration of a language can tell quite a lot about the character of a people. And since a people share a common language, the individual is dependent on a common element, an average quantity, as it were, of which is prevalent among the people. He is thus subject to a certain tyranny, the rule of communality. If you get the feeling, however, that our individual spiritual life on the one hand and the spiritual life of the communalities on the other is laid down, so to speak, in the language, then what one could call the mystery of language could seem to have a special significance. Something could certainly be learned about human soul life if one were to observe how this expresses itself in the particular vehicle of language. The mystery of a language, its origin and its development through the various ages, has always been a puzzling question for certain special branches of science. But it cannot be said that these disciplines have been particularly successful in our age in uncovering the secret of language. This is why we shall be having a little look today in outline, aphoristically, so to speak, at language its development and its connection with the human being from a spiritual scientific point of view. In the way we have been doing with regard to human beings and their evolution. What seems so mysterious to start with is that we make use of a word to describe an object, an idea or a procedure. In what way is that particular combination of sounds which form a word or sentence connected with that which comes from us and signifies the object. External science has tried to put together all kinds of experiences with a great number of combinations. But this method has proved unsatisfactory. The question, which is so simple and yet so difficult to answer, is this. On encountering some object or activity in the outer world, What made human beings produce one particular sound from out of themselves as an echo to it? From a certain point of view, the matter was thought to be quite simple. They imagined, for example, that speech would have been formed by imitating, with an ability in our speech organs, sounds heard outside, such as the sounds made by animals, or something knocking against something else rather like when children hear a dog barking and making the sounds bow-wow, and they imitate it and call the dog a bow-wow. This kind of word formation could be called onomatopoeic, an imitation of the sound. This was held by certain directions of thought to be the original foundation of sound and word formation. Of course, the question of how human beings came to name creatures which did not emit a sound, remains unanswered. The great linguistic researcher Max Müller, realizing the unsatisfactory nature of such a theory, ridiculed it by calling it the Bow-Wow theory. He set up another theory in its place, which his opponents, in turn, called mystical, giving the word a sense in which it should not be used. For what Max Müller meant by it was that each object possesses something like a tone. Everything, in a certain sense, has a tone, 
not only glass when it is dropped or the bell when it is struck, but everything. And the ability of human beings to establish a relationship between their soul and this tone, which is, as it were, the inner being of the object, calls forth the possibility in the soul of expressing this inner sound and nature of the object. Thus the essence of a bell can be experienced in imitating the sound as bim-bum. And Max Müller's opponents returned his ridicule by calling his theory the bim-bum theory. A more detailed examination would show that something unsatisfactory always remains on trying to characterize outwardly in this way the things human beings experience as an echo in themselves responding to the nature of things outside. We shall have to penetrate more deeply into the inner nature of the human being. In the light of spiritual science, the human being is, after all, a very complicated being. To start with, we can see that human beings have a physical body within which are the same laws and substances that we can also find in the mineral world. Then, spiritual science tells us of a second higher member of the human being, the etheric or life body, and further of the member that we call the bearer of pleasure and pain, instinct, desire and passion, the astral body, which for spiritual science is just as real, if not more real, a member of human nature than what we see with our eyes and touch with our hands. And the fourth member of the human being we called the bearer of the ego. We realized that at the present stage human development consists of the ego working on the transformation of the other three members of the human being. And we pointed to the fact that in the far future the ego will have transformed these three members to such an extent that there will be nothing left of what nature or the spiritual forces in nature have made of these three members. The astral body, the bearer of pleasure and pain, joy and sorrow, of all the surging life of inner pictures, sensations and perceptions, arose initially within our participation, that is, without the work of our ego. But now the ego has become active there, purifying, cleansing and mastering all the qualities and activities of the astral body. If the ego has still not much has still not done much work on the astral body, human beings are slaves to their instincts and desires. But when they purify these and transform them into virtues, when they have brought logical order into their will-o'-the-wisp thinking, then a part of the astral body has been transformed and has changed from a product in which the ego takes no part into a product of the ego. When the ego will have consciously achieved this work, of which today, at this stage in evolution, only a start has been made, it will have this name of spirit-self, or to use a term from Oriental philosophy, manas. When the ego works not only in the astral body, but in a different and more intensive way in the etheric body, the name given to this part of the etheric body, transformed by the ego, is life-spirit or with a term from Oriental philosophy, buddhi. And when the ego has, at last, become so strong, and this will happen only in the far distant future, that it transforms the physical body and regulates its laws, 
so that the ego thoroughly permeates it and masters its whole life. This part of the physical body is called spirit man, or also, because this task starts with controlling the breathing process, with a term from Oriental philosophy, Atman, which is connected with breathing. Parenthesis, German to breathe is Atmen. Close parenthesis. Initially, then, we see the human being as a four-membered being, consisting of physical body, etheric body, astral body, and ego. And just as we have three members of our being, deriving from the past, we are also able to speak of three members of the human being, developing in the future, created by the work of the ego. We can therefore speak of a seven-membered human being, by adding to the physical body, the etheric body, the astral body and the ego, the spirit self, life spirit, and spirit man. But when we regard these last three members as something distant, belonging to the future evolution of humankind, we have to add that the human being is to a certain extent already at present preparing for such a development. Consciously the human being will work with his ego on the physical, etheric and astral bodies only in the far distant future. But in the subconscious, that is, out of a dimly conscious activity, the ego has already transformed these three members of its being. The results are already in existence. The inner members of the human being that we described in previous lectures were only able to come about because of the work the ego did on them. From the astral body it fashioned the sentient soul as a kind of inner mirror image of the sentient body. While the sentient body transmits what we call gratification, parenthesis, as far as man is concerned, sentient body and astral body are synonymous, and without the sentient body we would have no gratification. Close parenthesis. This is mirrored internally in the soul as desire. So we ascribe desire to the soul. So, the two things that is, the astral body and the transformed astral body or sentient body, belong together, just as gratification and desire belong together. In the past, the ego worked similarly on the etheric body. This led to human beings acquiring within them, in their souls, the rational or perceptive soul, so that the rational soul, which is at the same time the bearer of memory, is connected with a subconscious transformation performed by the ego in the etheric body. And finally, the ego also already worked in the past on the transformation of the physical body, so as to enable human beings to have their present form. And what resulted from this transformation is what we call the consciousness soul, by means of which human beings can acquire knowledge of the outer world. In this way, too, we can speak of a seven-membered being, for through the preparatory subconscious work of the ego there arose the three soul members, the sentient soul, rational soul, and consciousness soul. But all this was done by an unconscious or subconscious activity of the ego on its sheaths. These three sheaths, the physical body, the etheric body, and the astral body, What complicated entities they are! What a miracle of construction 
is the human physical body. And if we examine it in greater detail, we would find that it is much more complex than just the part which the ego has transformed into the consciousness soul and which can be called the physical bearer of the consciousness soul. Similarly, the etheric body is much more complicated than what we call the bearer of the rational or perceptive soul. And the astral body, too, is more complicated than what we call the bearer of the sentient soul. These parts are certainly in a poor state compared with what existed before the human being had an ego. This is why in spiritual science we speak of the human being as having come into existence way back in the past, the first beginnings of the physical body being a gift from spiritual beings. This was followed by the etheric body, later on by the astral body, and finally by the ego. Therefore, the human physical body has passed through four stages of evolution. First, the physical body interrelated directly with the spiritual world. Then it was worked on and interwoven with the etheric body, becoming thereby more complicated. Then it became interwoven with the astral body, which made it more complicated again. Then the ego was added, and only the work on the latter, excuse me, and only the work of the latter on the physical body transformed part of the physical body and made it into the bearer of human consciousness, the capacity with which we can acquire knowledge of the outer world. But this physical body has much more to do than bring us knowledge of the outer world by means of our senses and our brain. It has to carry out a number of activities which form the basis of our consciousness, but which take place completely outside the sphere of the brain. The same applies to the etheric body and to the astral body. Now, if we realize that everything we have, found, we have around us in the outer world is spirit, that there is a spiritual foundation to everything material, etheric, and astral, as we have emphasized so often, then we have to acknowledge that just as the ego itself works as a spiritual force from the inside outward in the course of the development of the three sheaths, so must spiritual beings, or we could equally well call them spiritual activities, have worked on our physical body, etheric body and astral body before the ego became operative and took the work further. We are looking back at a time in which so to speak, active work was being done on our astral body, etheric body, and physical body of a similar kind to the work the ego does on these three sheaths. That is to say, spiritual creativity, spiritual activity worked on our sheaths, giving them form, movement, and configuration until the ego was ready to become established within them. We have to speak of there being spiritual participation in human development until the ego became active, and that there are within us spiritual activities which presuppose ego activity and which were there before the ego could take over. If we exclude for a moment all the work the ego has done to create out of the three sheaths the sentient soul, rational or perceptive soul, and consciousness soul, 
and look at the structure, inner movement, and activity of these three sheaths. We have to admit that before the ego began to be active, a spiritual activity was working in us. This is why in spiritual science we speak of human beings as they are today, as having an individual soul, a soul interwoven with an ego, which makes every human being into a self-contained individuality. But before this happened, human beings issued from a group soul, a soul entity such as we still refer to today in the animal world as group soul. What we address in each person as the individual soul we find in animals as the foundation of a whole species or kind. A whole animal species has one animal group soul in common. Whereas each human being has an individual soul, animals share one group soul. So before human beings became individual souls, another soul was working in the three sheaths of their being, of which we have knowledge today only through spiritual science, a soul that was the precursor of our individual ego. And this precursor of our ego, this soul of a species, this group soul of human beings, which then passed on to the ego the three sheaths they had been working on, the physical body, etheric body, and astral body, so that the ego might continue to transform them, this group soul being also transformed from within itself, the physical body, etheric body, and astral body, and ordered them according to itself. And the final activity, fundamental to us human beings, before we were endowed with an ego, forms the basis of what we call human speech. When we therefore consider what preceded the life of our consciousness soul, our rational or perceptive soul, and our sentient soul, we arrive at work performed on our soul before it was interwoven with the ego, the result of which is laid down in what is expressed today in speech. What is the outer expression of what we call the four members of the human being based on? Purely externally, how is this expressed in the physical body? The physical body of a plant looks different from the physical body of a human being. Why? Because in a plant only the physical body and the etheric body are present, whereas in the human physical body the astral body and the ego are also active. What is active inwardly also refashions the physical body accordingly. What effect did it have on the physical body that an etheric body permeated it? The glandular system is the outer physical expression in man and animal of the etheric body, meaning that the etheric body is the architect or sculptor of what we call the glandular system. The astral body is the creator of what we call the nervous system. That is why we only have the right to speak of a nervous system in those beings in which an astral body is present. What is the expression in a human being of his ego? It is the blood system, and specifically when the blood is under the influence of the warmth of inner life. All the activity the ego expends on human beings 
when the result is to be incorporated into the physical body, is channeled via the blood. This is why blood is such a special fluid, to quote from Goethe's Faust. When the ego elaborates the sentient soul, the rational soul, and the consciousness soul, its achievements only penetrate into the physical body because the ego has the ability to affect the physical body via the blood. Our blood is the mediator for the astral body and ego and all their activities. Who would have any doubt, even on a superficial level, that just as a person's ego works on the consciousness soul, rational soul and sentient soul, it also refashions its physical body? Who would deny that a person's physiognomical expression is an elaboration of what lives and works inwardly? And who would not agree that even inner thought activity, if it takes hold of a person's whole heart, can also, in the course of a person's life, have a transforming effect on the brain? Our brain is a tool that adapts itself to the requirements of our thinking. But if we consider the transforming effect, done in an artistic kind of way, that a person's ego can have on his own external being, it is very small. There is very little we can achieve through our blood by setting it in motion through our inner warmth. Those spiritual beings whose work preceded the work of our ego managed to achieve more for they were able to make use of a more effective means, and under their influence the human form became an overall expression of what these spiritual beings made of the human being. What medium did they use for their work? They used no other medium than air. Just as we use our inner warmth to make our blood pulsate, activating it in our own form, so did the beings working on us use the air. And what proceeded from the work these beings carried out on us through the medium of the air gave us our form as human beings. It could seem strange that we are speaking here of spiritual forces working on the human being in the far distant past through the medium of air. But it will not be the first time I have said that It would be a misjudgment to think of the soul and spirit life of our inner being only as a product of our mental imaginings, and not to realize that where we get this from is the entire outer world. Anyone who claims that concepts and ideas could arise in us, even if there were no ideas out there, might just as well claim that they can drink from an empty glass. Our ideas would be nothing else than froth and bubble, unless they were the very thing that also lives in things outside us as their inherent law. What we bring alive again in ourselves, we get from the environment. That is why we can say that everything that surrounds us materially is interwoven with spiritual beings. Strange as it may sound, what surrounds us as air is not really the substance chemistry says it is, but within it, actively working, are spiritual beings, spiritual forces. And just as we can work a little bit at forming our physical body by means of the blood's warmth emanating from our ego, and this needs stressing, 
These beings that preceded the ego worked most powerfully at forming the outer physical structure of the human being by means of the air. And this is the important thing here. What makes us human is our larynx and everything that has to do with it. This wonderful artistic organ of the larynx, together with the other organs that serve speech and voice, and which have been built into us from outside, was created out of the spiritual element in the air. Goethe said very aptly with regard to the eye, E-Y-E, the eye is fashioned by the light, for the light. If in the sense of Schopenhauer, the emphasis is put only on the fact that without an eye sensitive to light, we would have no impression of light, that is saying only a half-truth. The other half of the truth would be that we would not have eyes at all if in the far distant past the light had not, as it were, built eyes into us out of organs as yet undefined. Therefore we must regard light not merely as that abstract entity that is described as light in physics today. In place of that, we have to come to realize that light is a being hidden in mystery, one that is capable of creating eyes. Similarly, we can say that there lives and works in the air a being who is capable at a certain moment of impressing into man the intricate organ of the larynx and everything to do with it. In the rest of the human form, down to the smallest detail, has been formed and sculpted so that human beings now at the present age are, as it were, a further continuation of their speech organs. Our speech organs are, in our present stage, the determining factor where our human form is concerned. This is why it is precisely speech that raises human beings above the animals. For that particular being whom we call the spirit of the air also worked at fashioning the animals. But this work did not extend to giving them a speech organ such as human beings have. We realize then that human beings already possessed a speech organ before they arrived at the point of having their present thinking, life of feeling and their will. That is to say everything that has to do with the ego. Now we shall find it understandable that these spiritual forces could only work on the physical body in such a manner that human beings finally became like an appendix to their speech organs, in that they continued the development of the astral body, etheric body and physical body by means of the shaping forces of the air. After human beings had become capable of possessing an organ, that corresponded to what we have called the spiritual beings of the air, similarly to the way the eyes correspond to the spiritual beings of the light, they could fashion into this what their ego developed in itself in the way of reason, consciousness, feeling awareness, and emotion. So, let us look for a threefold activity in the subconscious going on in the physical body, etheric body and astral body, which was taking place, as it were, previous to the advent of the ego. We can find clues if we can remember that this was the group soul and that the group soul worked in an incomplete way in the animals.
This has to be taken into account when we look at the work the spiritual forces performed in the astral body before the arrival of the ego. We have to exclude everything to do with the human eye, capital, and keep in mind the group eye working out of the dark depths. In the astral body, desire and gratification face one another in an imp- on an imperfect level. Desire could, as it were, become ensouled, could become an inner quality, because it already had a precursor in the astral body. Just as desire and gratification face one another in the astral body, imagery, symbolism, and outer stimulus face one another in the etheric body. Let me read it again. Just as desire and gratification face one another in the astral body, imagery, symbolism, and outer stimulus face one another in the etheric body. It is most important that we distinguish the activity of our ether body preceding the ego from the activity going on in it after the advent of the ego. When the ego is active as rational or perceptive soul, then, at the present stage of human evolution, it seeks a truth which is as close as it can get to a faithful picture of things outside. What does not correspond exactly to outer things is called untrue. The spiritual forces active before the advent of the ego did not work like that. They worked more in imagery and symbols, rather like dream functions. A dream works in the following manner. Someone dreams, for instance, of a shop being fired, and when he wakes up he sees that his bedside chair has fallen over. The outer happening, outer impression, the chair falling over, is transformed in the dream into an image, the shot. The spiritual beings preceding the ego worked in this symbolic way, and we ourselves shall again work this way when, through initiation, we work our way up to a higher spiritual activity, where we shall again be endeavoring, but now with full consciousness, to pass from the merely abstract outside world toward a symbolic, imaginative approach. Then these spiritual beings working in the human physical body transformed it into what can be called a correspondence between outer happenings, outer facts, and imitation. Imitation is something which, for example, we find in children when the other soul forces have hardly been developed. Imitation is something that belongs to the subconscious nature of the human being. This is why education should start with imitation, because before the ego begins to bring order into its inner activities, the drive to imitate is present as a natural drive. All that we have just presented as the physical body's urge to imitate, when confronted by things going on outside, the symbolizing of the etheric body when confronted by outer stimulus, and what we can call the matching of desire and gratification in the astral body, can be thought of as having been elaborated with the help of the instrument of the air, so that a sculpted, artistic impress of it was brought about in our larynx and our whole speech apparatus. 
We shall then be able to say that these beings preceding the ego worked into human beings in such a way that with the help of the air they formed and fashioned them so that the air could come to expression in them in this threefold way. For when we look at our speech faculty, really and truly, we have to ask, does it consist of the sound we utter? No, it is not the sound. What happens is that our ego sets in motion what has been created into us by the air. In the same way as we set our eyes in motion in order to take in the outer light, the eye itself existing for this purpose, our ego leads us to set in motion those organs which have been formed out of the spiritual element in the air. We set the organs in motion through the force of the ego, taking hold of the organs that correspond to the spirit of the air. Then we have to wait until the spirit of the air that formed the organs gives us in return as an echo of the air activity within us the gift of the sound. We do not create the sound ourselves any more than the single parts of a pipe create sound. What we create ourselves is the activity the ego can engender by making use of the organs built of the spiritual element of air. Then, in order for the word to sound forth, we have to leave it to the spirits of the air to set the air in motion again by means of the activity that created the organs. Now we can indeed see that language is based on this threefold correspondence we have been describing. But what corresponds to what? What does imitation in the physical body depend on? It is based on our imitating in the movements of our speech organs those outer activities and objects which make an impression on us and reproducing them as sound in the same way as a painter imitates a scene that consists of quite different elements than paint, canvas, light, and dark. Similar to the way the painter imitates with light and dark, we imitate the environment with our organs, which were formed out of the element of air. This is why what we produce in sound is a real imitation of the essence of things, and our consonants and vowels are nothing else than an image and an imitation of the things outside us that make an impression on us. The activity in the etheric body is pictorial. Symbolism is built into it. The first elements of our speech were created by imitation, but then its further development happened by it, so to speak, breaking away from outer impressions and being worked upon by the etheric body through symbolism when, as in dreams, speech now no longer resembled outer impressions, but became independent of them. What went on in us was then purely symbolic and no longer mere imitation. And finally, desire and gratification and all the inner life expressed in the astral body made further changes in the development of speech. Joy and sorrow a whole host of inner experiences pour out in sound and bring a subjective element into it. 
What started merely as imitation and was then transformed into a speech symbol in an independent sound or word image is now transformed further by being shot through with inner human experience, such as pain and joy, pleasure, sorrow, horror and fear. What struggles free in the sound must always be in correspondence with something outside. Yet when the soul expresses its inner experiences in sound, it has first to search for the corresponding outer experience. We have to realize that this is how it is with the third element, the soul element. Otherwise, it would be a mere sounding forth that did not accord with anything else. What happens here we can see in our children when they learn to speak. We can watch our babies begin to transform a feeling into sound. When they first call out mama or da da, this is, to begin with, just excitement being turned into a sound. It is only externalizing something inside them. But when the baby expresses itself like this, and the mother or father respond, then it notices that the joy it has expressed corresponds to an outer happening. The baby does not, of course, ask how it happens that its cry corresponds to the coming of its mother or father. The inner experience of joy or pain allies itself with an outer expression. And what streams out from within connects with the outer impression. This is a third way in which speech works. It is true to say that speech originated just as much by internal imitation of something outside as by outer reality reality being linked to our inner experience. All this takes place without the participation of the ego. It is only at a later stage that the ego takes over this activity. We see then that the forces in existence previous to the ego were at work in the configuration upon which the human speech ability is based. And because the ego came on the scene after the foundation of speech had already been created, language then adapted to the ordering influence of the ego. So the oral expressions corresponding to the sentient body are now taken over by the sentient soul, and the images and symbols corresponding to the etheric body are taken over by the rational soul. The human being pours into the sound what he experiences in the rational soul and, similarly, fills it with what is experienced in the consciousness soul, which initially was only imitation. Through this process, those areas of our language gradually came into existence that reproduce inner experiences of the soul. This is why, to understand the essence of language, we have to realize that there is something in us that was there before the arrival of the ego and that was then developed by the ego. We cannot expect then that language is entirely a product of the ego, that it represents the spiritual aspect in us, everything that is intimately related to our individual personality, but have to realize that we must never look on language as a direct expression of the ego. The spirit of language works, for instance, symbolically in the etheric body and imitatively in the physical body. 
And all this is combined with its activity in the sentient soul, squeezing inner experiences out of it, so that the sound becomes an expression of our inner life. Taking all this into consideration, we should be justified in saying that language did not develop according to the way the conscious ego works today. But if we want to compare the development of language with anything, we can only compare it with artistic creation. We can no more expect that language copies what is meant to represent than we can expect that when an artist imitates the imitates, the picture will correspond to reality. Language only imitates the outer world as any picture or artist imitates outer reality. We could say that before human beings were ego-conscious, beings, excuse me, let me read that again, we could say that before human beings were ego-conscious beings, in the way they are today, an artist was at work in them as the spirit of the language. And our ego has entered a place where previously an artist was at work. This is but this is put rather pictorially, but it expresses a truth. We are looking at a subconscious activity and feel that here we have something which made us, ourselves, into speaking human beings as works of art. Therefore we could we should see language as analogous to a work of art. In this respect, we must not forget that we should examine such work of art in the light of the medium by means of which it has been created. Language, too, then, will have to be looked at within certain limits. If this were borne in mind, it would preclude from the outset such pedantic works as Fritz Mautner's titled Kritik der Sprache. Here the critique of language is based on quite wrong premises, namely, that if we survey human languages, they do not in any way represent objective reality. But is that their function in the first place? Is it possible for them to do so? There is just as little chance of language representing reality as there is for a picture to represent outer reality in the colors on the canvas and the use of light and shadow. The spirit of language which underlies human activity has to be grasped with artistic feeling. This could only be given in rough outline. But if we know that in humankind there was an artist at work forming language, then we shall understand, however different the various languages are, that right down to each separate language the artistic element was at work in all sorts of different ways. So we shall see that this spirit of language let us call this being working in the air the spirit of language, when it manifests at a relatively low stage of humankind, works in an atomistic way that constructs everything from the single parts. We then have an example of a language that is so constructed that the whole sentence is put together out of various sound pictures. If, for instance, in Chinese we have the sound shi and pian, we have two atoms of language formation. The one syllable shi means song, singing, and pian means book. If we put the two sound pictures together, shi pian, it would be doing the same thing as, in English, arriving at the combination poetry book. 
This is a small example of how the Chinese language forms its concepts and mental images. If we reflect on the things we have been considering today, we can also understand now the essence of such a wonderfully formed language as the Hebrew language, for instance. This language has a foundation of certain sound images that actually consist only of consonants. When speaking it, a person inserts vowels in between these consonants, taking as an example the consonants Q, T, L, and inserting an A, and then again an A, then, whilst the word formed solely out of consonants was just an imitation of an external sound picture, through the addition of vowels the word cattle arises, meaning to kill. There is an interesting development here in that to kill, as a sound image, came about initially by the speech organs simply imitating the outer pictures. Then the soul continues the process and inner experience is added by way of the vowels. Further development is carried out on the sound picture, excuse me, on the sound image, so that to kill is referred to a subject. This is basically the way the whole of the Hebrew language is constituted, and it brings to expression the interaction of all those elements of language formation that we have mentioned as contributing to the structure of language. Symbolism, that is, what we have found to be the way the spirit of language is active in the etheric body, which is the primary agent in the Hebrew language, demonstrates just those characteristic features of the Hebrew language that build on the sound images acquired by imitation and transforms them into symbols through the insertion of vowels. Therefore, all the words of the Hebrew language are formed in principle in such a way that they relate to things in the environment in the way symbols do. In contrast, everything occurring in Indo-Germanic languages is prompted more by what we have called the inner expression of the astral body, the speaker's inner being. The astral body is something that is already connected with consciousness. When people confront the outer world, they distinguish themselves from it. If people face the world from the point of view of the etheric body, they fuse with it, become one with it. Not until things are mirrored in our consciousness do we distinguish ourselves from them. This whole working of the astral body with its inner experiences is, in contrast to the Semitic languages, expressed in such a wonderful way in the Indo-Germanic languages in that they have the verb to be, the establishing of the fact that there is an existence outside themselves. This is possible because with our consciousness, we distinguish ourselves from what makes an impression on us from outside. Therefore, if people wanted to say in Hebrew, God is good, they could not do so directly, for they cannot reproduce the word is as an expression of being, because this arises out of the opposition of the astral body and the outer world. The etheric body makes simple statements. This is why in the Hebrew language you would have to say God the good. It is not confrontation of subject and object that is being described. The Indo-Germanic languages in particular 
other ones that show a confrontation with the outer world, ones whose main characteristic is the perception of the outer world. They, in turn, affect human beings in that they support inwardness, that is, all those things that provide the foundations for developing a strong personality, a strong ego. This is already evident in the language. Everything I have been able to give you today might be considered by some people to be only unsatisfactory indications for the simple reason that one would have to speak for a fortnight if one wanted to describe things belonging to this field in greater detail. Nevertheless, those who have attended these lectures fairly regularly and who have entered into the essential nature of the matter will see that such indications are not unjustified. They may possibly show that if we begin to look at language in this spiritual scientific way, it will lead in principle to the realization that language cannot be understood in any other way than by endeavoring to take hold of it with an artistic sense, which one must first acquire. That is why all scholarship must fail if people are not willing to participate in the creative act and recreate what the artistic spirit of language carried out in human beings before the ego became active in us. The secrets of language can only be understood with the help of an artistic sense, because only a creative sense can recreate. No scholarly abstractions will ever make a work of art comprehensible. Only those ideas illuminate a work of art which are able to recreate in a productive way as ideas the things which the artist is capable of expressing by other means, color, sound, and so on. An artistic sense is the only thing that can comprehend an artist, and it is only someone with artistic feeling for language who can understand the spiritual creativity that created language. That is one of the tasks that spiritual science is called upon to do in respect of language. The other task is something which is of significance on a practical level. When we realize that language is the creation of a pre-human artist, we shall also be able to rise to activating our artistic sense when we want to say something worth saying. But there is little feeling for this in the present time when not much progress has been made in fostering a living feeling for language. Today, anyone who opens their mouths thinks they can say things in an old way. But we need to realize that we have to create in ourselves a direct connection between what we have to say and how we say it. We have to reawaken the linguistic artist in us in all realms. People today are quite happy if what they want to say comes out anyhow, not minding what form it takes. How many people realize that an artistic feeling for language is necessary for expressing anything? And this is absolutely essential in the field of spiritual science. Take a look at spiritual scientific writings. You will find that true spiritual scientists will have seriously worked at them to form each sentence creatively, and that the position of the verb is not arbitrary. Each sentence arising in this way is a birth, 
because it has to be experienced inwardly in the soul directly as form, not merely as a thought. And the sentences, if they are, say, three, will not have an arbitrary connection. For not only the first, but also the third, will have had to have been conceived before the middle one is formed, because the effect of the middle sentence depends on the continuing effect of the first sentence, which can be carried on into the following one. In spiritual science it is impossible to work without a creatively active sense of language. Anything else is wrong. It is important that we free ourselves from being slavishly tied to words. But we shall not be able to do this by thinking that any word will do to express a certain thought, that already, that already is a wrong approach to forming language. We shall never find words to express supersensible facts from those coined to apply to the sense world. Anyone capable of asking what word one should use to describe the etheric body or the astral body in a really concrete manner has not understood anything of this. But a person who has understood something of this will realize, I will find out what the etheric body is if I start by investigating it from one particular aspect and find that it has to do with artistically formed reflex images. Then I investigate the matter from three more aspects. The matter has then been presented from four different sides, so that now if we give a spoken presentation, we shall, so to speak, pass through all the aspects and be presenting artistic reflex images of it. If one is not aware of this, one will achieve nothing but abstractions and a sclerotic reproduction of what one already knows. This is why progress in spiritual science will always be associated with what we might call furthering the development of the inner sense for language and its inner formative power. In this way, spiritual science will have a beneficial effect on our present-day style of speaking. It will be able to reform the terrible linguistic style of people today who do not have the slightest notion of the creativity of language. If they did have, not so many people who can hardly speak and write would embark on literary careers. A long time ago the awareness was lost of the fact that to write prose, for example, shows a far greater capacity than to write verse. Only the prose written today is obviously of a far lower caliber. But spiritual science is here to act as a stimulus in those fields associated with the deepest aspirations of humankind. For the active work spiritual science will do in these fields will fulfill the visions of the greatest personalities. By means of thoughts, spiritual science will gain access to supersensible worlds and become capable of decanting thought into sound pictures so that our language can again become a medium of communication for what souls see with supersensible sight. Then spiritual science will have become the very thing that will verify for a multitude of people the truth to which the following words regarding the most significant realms of our inner life testify, quote, immeasurably deep, immeasurably deep is the thought and its winged agent is the word. The end of lecture one.